Well, welcome to Tech Believe. Uh, I am the Lonesome Comrade. My pronouns are they, them. This is the podcast where we talk about what the real life or what real life would be like if uh, science fiction was real. Um, and I'm here with my co-host, and that's Q to you. Hi, I'm Dr. Nefarious. Uh, he, 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 him. And we have our special guest here, Aranova. Uh, Nova, the pronouns are he, him. Dope. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. So today our topic is going to be power generation. So there's two modes of power generation that we really need to talk about in, in separate here. The first is portable power generation, and the second is uh, basically mass-type uh, power generation. Uh, yeah, like industrial scale. Yep, and there's two important qualities. Multi-planetary scale. Yep, and there's, there's two important qualities here that we need to talk about when we're talking about something that's portable, and that is the actual power, which is energy per second that it can put out. And also the total energy of the portable system. So, just to put some things into perspective here, a typical well, let's let's compare some weapons here. So, an M two forty machine gun fires a seven six two by fifty fifty one millimeter NATO. It fires about eight hundred rounds a minute, and it puts out about three thousand joules per round. So you're going to see that that's actually quite on the low end. Uh, so that is a total power output of about 9.6 megawatts. <laughs> Keep in mind that that... Oh, sorry, sorry, no, not, not megawatts. Um, uh, 50 kilowatts. So that's... Keep in mind that... No, that's 3, much more. Yeah, keep in mind that 3,000 number there. That's each individual bullet, and it fires 800 of those for a total of 50,000 kilowatts. A AA battery contains 12,000 joules of energy. So about four <laughs> 762 NATO uh, rounds worth. And I chose these two specifically because... They're both about 23 to 25 grams each. So the energy density there is about the same. The power difference, however, is a AA battery puts out about 0.1 to 0.25 watts. That M240 machine gun puts out 204, uh, uh, 9.6 m- if I can speak to that. 50 megawatts. <laughs> there we go. Goddamn. Sorry, I got, all, I, got, I got all my numbers here. If that same machine gun were spitting out a AA battery at the same rate, it would be 9.6 megawatts, which is where I keep getting that 9.6 megawatts out of. Right. Well, that, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. And both of these are vastly inferior energy density wise compared to gasoline which is uh, 49,000 joules per gram <laughs> so those oh. the AA battery and the the 762 are both 23 grams and the AA battery at the highest end has about 12,000 joules a gram of gasoline has about four times more energy than a AA battery so I am shocked to hear that gunpowder has such a low energy density. Like I have used and maintained M240s, and I can tell you that it feels like they do more than this. Right. That's well. That's that's the whole point here. Is there's a difference between total energy and the mm-hmm. power output, and the reason that feels low is because when you think of a battery, you don't think of a whole lot happening at once, and that's because the power output. Of a bat of batteries are exceedingly low. So remember when I said it was about 0.1 to 0.25 watts 
for the battery, whereas the machine gun was 50 kilowatts. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's what, 500 yeah, yeah. times more. So Yeah, that, yeah, that feels a lot better, actually, when I think about it that way. Yeah. So, battery technology is something that is very important for us to advance. It is in the middle ground in terms of actual energy storage. But where it, we're lacking is the power generation. How fast can you get that power back out of the battery? That's what we're, we're really uh, struggling with. Now, so what it comes down to is how effectively you can harness the stored energy then. Yes. And direct exactly. it. Exactly. Now, Nova, you were a generator mechanic, is that correct? Yep. Uh, so, diesel, a little bit of gasoline. Uh, so, uh, prime power plants in the deployed environment. So it was uh, the MEP-12 generator. It's uh, 750 kilowatts, uh, 4,160 volts alternating current at about, I think, 240 amps. Ooh, and how big were those? Uh, about the size of a uh, truck trailer, similar to that. Wow, that is huge. Yeah. And yet, that's only, what, eight times more than than what a tooth, uh, two, uh, M240 would be able to put out. Yeah. Now, so, what, um, what you would do is you'd have a, a primary distribution circuit with four of those linked together, uh, supplying power to a specific part of the base and uh, you would I'd, you'd want it set up so that you could run off of two at a time and then um, you'd have one on that circuit would be for available to do maintenance on and then one that would be uh, uh, kind of a backup for the other two that are doing most of the operation so yep that explains the huge generator arrays right next to every single housing pad yep that's that was I was I was the guy working in those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's my main memory of Iraq. Just as a digression, is the diesel fumes. Yeah, we were dumping in thousands of gallons of diesel to air condition the desert. <laughs> like it was our average, like our power plant. You went through about ten thousand gallons of diesel in uh, about a week. <laughs> oh my god. Like, I knew the numbers would be bad, but damn. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, it's difficult to properly express exactly how much diesel those things ate up, but it was a lot. Yep. It was a lot. And keep in mind, that's, diesel is almost as good as, as gasoline in terms of, of energy density. Yep. So, uh, let's see here. I guess the word I'm looking for is we need better technology for power. <laughs> yeah. Because not only are we spending all of those resources dumping all of this stuff just to maintain our, our air conditioning, fossil fuels are, um, uh, what's the word, a uh, total disaster. Yeah. yeah, the industrial revolution was a uh, was an extinction level event, a yeah, planetary was, extinction level event. You you might you might call it a mistake. Uh, there was <laughs> there, there were a few oopsies along the way. Uh, we've we've made some minor changes to the planet. Uh, thanks to I accidentally unterraformed my Terra. <laughs> oh, I love that. And that's that's what it comes down to, like. I read a little bit about theoretical terraforming, and one of the main things you need to do is release a lot of the stored volatiles in a cold planet to get it to go hot. Yep. So if you have a warm planet, it does the same thing. Yep. God damn it. So not only is, our, is power generation important for things like railguns, it's important for, you know, generally saving the planet. Thankfully... <laughs> We actually have a few ways of actually doing that. So the first thing that I want to talk about here is what I hope is kind of the next stage of stored electrical energy, uh, or at least after whatever we have with advanced chemical batteries, and that is bottled light.
Okay, I'm listening. <laughs> so, we have actually made perfect mirrors that are perfect only for specific um, wavelengths of light. So, mm -hmm. in theory, it is possible to store and bottle light in a device that is perfectly reflective in which the the light will just simply bounce around in there until you extract it okay so and that's going to make the outer surface of this vessel heat up and we're harnessing that heat no 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 no. it's perfectly reflective so it just stays in there and bounces around until you extract it so <laughs> So I'm now picturing like an underground container train pulls up to a station and hatches open under it and the cars open up on the bottom and all the light just comes out into a greenhouse. Yeah, or, or, <laughs> or more, a solar more than, farm. Yeah, or more than likely a, um, well, this, not, not even necessarily like a solar farm. Like you could put this in something like a, uh, a handheld, like just a small no, tiny little battery. It's a, oh my God. So here's... So Here's a question that I have uh, based off of my understanding of power generation. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so the way that uh, diesel power generation and gas power generation and windmill and water and nuclear power generation all work is um, they use the energy source to spin a shaft. And then that shaft, um, there's, you know, magnets uh, along the shaft there that the actual alternator um and you know bundles of wrapped coil and so on and that's what causes the actual generation of electricity is you know harnessing those uh, uh differences with the the magnetism yep. uh so what i'm curious about is and that's like even like a nuclear power plant it's just it's using nuclear power to heat up water and using the steam to turn the wheel, basically. And, you know, a, a hydroelectric dam, same thing. It's using the force of water to turn a wheel. Um, so what I'm curious about was bottle light and then was, you know, whatever else we may talk about is how does it turn the wheel? Or what does it do instead of turning a wheel? Okay, so with, specifically with bottle light, that would be a fairly easy thing to do once we have... Uh, better uh, solar cells, for instance. So the photovoltaic effect is basically a, a method by to, of turning pure light into directly into electricity. So that's, that's what photovoltaics are. That's, that's all the, the solar yeah, it's panel, like magic. panel does. Basically. Uh, it's basically overcoming Coulomb barriers and, and <laughs> jumping electricity. Honestly, all electricity is basically magic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have long held that the alternating current is the closest thing to harnessable magic that humans yeah. have. But uh, I am fascinated to hear about, like, the, the Coulomb forces effects and things on photovoltaics, or read about them later. Uh, yeah, we can go with that. Actually, that's that's something that I, I'll like to go into into a separate episode. Uh, okay. Solar solar stuff is going to be on uh, when we do our uh, uh, space travel episode. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, but actually, uh, Nova, you actually get into something that is actually fairly interesting uh, that I wanted to talk about today. And that's going back over to the uh, ground-based power uh, plants. Uh, yeah. And that is geofusion. Yeah. So, we could make a fusion reactor right now uh, that is efficient. The way you do that is basically having a giant body of water hooking that up to again like a, a power wheel and then exploding nuclear bombs in it that is something that you can do that is effective in pe generating power please tell me that that idea was part of like the operation plowshare documents no it, is, it would no. be a very big investment to actually to actually do this and uh also, oil companies wouldn't get their, their cut of the funds, so, yeah, nobody's, nobody's ever actually tried that before. <laughs> Thank goodness. The number of nukes we set off in this atmosphere already, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So that is, that's actually the first way that you can make fusion uh, viable. 
but <laughs> for a very generous definition of viable. <laughs> yeah, uh, but we're actually working on several different ways of 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 doing fusion, and fusion is the big one in the room. It's it's the not eight hundred pound elephant. It is it is the ten thousand megaton mm. elephant in the room. So right now yeah. we have two different methods of doing fusion. Uh, the first is something like a tokamak, which is basically just creating either a sphere or a toroid uh, in a if I can speak today in an electric field. So imagine like a donut of magnets, and those magnets are compressing a gas to such a degree that it heats up to a hundred and fifty million degrees. Now for reference the surface of the Sun uh, or sorry the center of the Sun is only like 10 million degrees. So these tokamak, yeah. yeah these these tokamak reactors get you know ten times hotter than the Sun. So we're they're not quite there in in terms of efficiency yet but I do think we are going to get there. The other way that you can do fusion is through fuel pellets and uh, if you remember when we were talking about lasers how you would need an immense laser to basically do anything uh, well these actually do exist and they're used in fusion reactors so it's it's, yeah. a, it's quite a simple design you get a fuel pellet with some tritium which is hydrogen uh, with two neutrons and some deuterium which is hydrogen with one neutron. Uh, you put that into a fuel pellet, and then you shine, and then you blast it with this laser, which heats it up so violently and quickly it fuses. Well, fun fact: this is how sublight engines in Star Trek work. The uh, the impulse drive is internally metered pulsed fusion drive. Really? I did. Yes, not it's one that. of the things that makes the most sense about Star Trek technology. Um, actually, uh, we're gonna get there. Because uh, that's that's uh, uh, the next two two items I want to discuss here. Uh, so let's oh, go ahead. Cool. And, yeah, let's go ahead and get into that because this is that's probably the absolutely most weirdest thing about advanced power systems is that you know in the in the far future when we have the technology to actually create black holes, <laughs> the, the Romulan. Ships Romulan singularity drive. Yes, that is actually possible. And here's how. So remember when I was talking about the stored light, the bottom yeah. light. So the smaller you make a black hole, the more energy it puts off, uh, and that's basically due to Hawking radiation. So if you have a micro black hole, it evaporates almost instantly. Like, very, very quickly. Yeah. So, how, for A, how can you get energy from that? And B, how can you keep it from instantly evaporating? And the answer is you take that technology from the bottled light. You put that around the black hole. So now that energy that the black hole is putting off, it's reabsorbing. So now you have a stable micro black hole that you can just lug around. Holy shit. Yeah, and it's constantly putting on tens of gigajoules a second. Now, that's cool inside the bottle. But that's cool inside the bottle, but how does that spin the wheel? So there's actually a couple different ways you could do that. Uh, the the yeah. simplest way uh, like one, one of the, the, the main things that people talk about when, they're, when they talk about using black holes as, as energy is not actually in a starship, but turning Jupiter into a, basically a, a generator. So you take a black hole, uh, a Kugelblitz, which is a, a black hole that's created by light, because light is... Or cause, I love that term. Yeah, it's one of my favorite words. Uh, it's basically just so the the concept is this energy is mass and mass is energy right so if you put enough energy into the same space it'll create a black hole okay yeah so, that makes sense 
And if you throw that into something like Jupiter, where it's constantly feeding, or you make it big enough so that it, it doesn't just instantly dissolve, the sucking in of the matter from Jupiter will put off light. And again, one of the constant things that you're going to see from this is you know, the, the photovoltaic effect, turning light into energy. Basically, electron uh, capture from uh, semiconductors from the light turns it into electric electricity. So, I don't even know where to start with that plan, but um, I'm like my mind is stuck on the like the, the ecological effects on the Earth of having a second tiny star in the system without mass changes, just the extra like emissions. Yeah, I don't think any. But, any but the idea, of, yeah, that's that's fucking incredible. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody's ever actually examined the the consequences of what that would do to the Earth. Uh, they well, we don't do that when we do stuff on Earth. So why do we get with this? <laughs> why start now? <laughs> they, they, they we start so now, then. Look, the important thing everything. is that we drain the swamps to lower malaria. That's what matters, and you know, don't hold up progress by trying to think about what that could lead to. They, they were so focused on whether they could, they never stopped to think whether they should. <laughs> Uh, but, but yeah, we stopped. Yep. Oh my God. Yep. Uh, and then uh, another way is literally we. It keeps coming back to you know using that energy, heat up water, turn a wheel, get energy. That I don't think that will ever go away. I, to be completely honest, that is a yeah dead. That's the uh, the fundamental of uh, energy generation. Yep. Yeah. For electricity, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, the the concept of uh, the concept of transmitting energy in an intermittent state to places throughout a building or a or a station or a ship, which then convert that into electricity, is uh, something I've always found very interesting. That's how uh, power distribution in federation ships works. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, because they, they have the uh, the plasma conduits. Yep, the EPS system. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the electroplasma system. The uh, yep. the thing, the safest thing for your ship that might get battle damaged is to have <laughs> contained plasma going all throughout it, so everything explodes dramatically. Well, that's why the consoles dramatically explode. EPS is my favorite thing because, like, they started from we want dramatic battle damage to show up on the screen, not just on like the tech shots of the outside of the ship. And I was like, well, what if we had a power distribution system that was unreasonably dangerous? <laughs> So, speaking I mean, of the... How else are you going to practice flinging yourself over a console? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. One, two, three, now! Which is how they did it. Yeah, so speaking of, of the Federation, uh, that's, that's another thing that's from Star Trek that's eerily accurate in science fiction. Uh, you know, you'd think the, the Romulans black hole drive would be completely unworkable, but it's not. And the, the, the way the Federation does things, you know, the antimatter drive isn't unworkable either. Uh, the only thing is, antimatter needs to be stored, uh, and it needs yeah. to be stored in an electromagnetic bottle, which I think is, for, if I remember correctly, John, you, you probably know this more than I do, that's kind of what the dilithium is for, isn't it? Um, yeah, the lithium regulates the reaction between matter and antimatter, and then that antimatter uh, is what creates, or that, that reaction is what creates the energy to, to generate the warp bubble. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. But, but specifically, there's, uh, there's storage in the vessel that uses magnetic bottles to keep yep. the antimatter. Yeah, yeah then, that's, um, yeah, they, they travel with that. Yeah, and then the, the reason, um, so it has been... Uh, a while since I read the entirety of the Next Generation Technical Manual, but I did read it six times as a child. Yep, and the uh, encyclopedia. Yep, same, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I was super excited to see that Discord conversation, but it concluded before <laughs> I could get into it. Um, yeah, um, the the thing about dilithium, uh, it is a transperiodic element, um, and there's it's super vague as to what exactly this means, because it changes with our understanding of physics in the real world. 
but essentially um, it diffuses some of the annihilation energy into uh, into time more or less like it diffuses it throughout time um, so that you can you can uh, you can regulate the reaction and the available electroplasma that's coming out of it uh, and get only enough so that your ship isn't going to be destroyed Ow. now what happens when you transmit a bunch of like when you transmit a, an, uh, a matter any matter annihilation throughout time I don't really know it doesn't sound like it would be good. Wait, isn't it like basically poisoning the uh, mycosphere from Discovery? So there was there. Uh, well, I okay. I haven't seen Discovery, um, but there was beginning of Next Generation. There was a meta plot line where uh, the warp drives traveling at warp speed through subspace is damaging to the fabric of subspace, yep. Yep. and so there was instituted a general speed limit of warp five uh, during the next generation time. Um, the speed of, of a warp factor, the relative speed in the outside universe, um, it, that isn't too much connected with what the warp factor represents. Um, each whole warp factor is sort of a, um, it's like a resonant state in, I don't know how to explain this exactly, so it's going to sound weird. It's, basically, there are, uh, there are points in your power curve where you're going faster and faster through, uh, through subspace where uh, the required energy drops, and that's a whole warp factor. So warp 5.5 takes as much energy as warp 6, and warp 5.9 takes as much energy as uh, 6 point something. Huh. So even in, our, even in the uh, utopian future of Star Trek, we can't get away from pollution. Well, yes, it was an allegory for pollution and global warming because the the drive mechanism is damaging the fabric of space that we live in. Wonderful. But, um, you know, uh, the military and trade depends on that, so, you know. Mm -hmm. And that was also, um, so in Star Trek Voyager, uh, the ship, it has the, the cool warp sequence where the nacelles flex upwards. Um, they obviously they just wanted it to look cool and have this thing it would do all the time that was iconic but like the, uh, the, the in-universe yeah <laughs> the in-universe explanation for that is something about uh, the variable pitch of the of the cells allows them to uh, to change the work field in a way that's less damaging okay then <laughs> oh star trek never never stopping star yeah. trek well, and that's the interesting thing. Yeah, the interesting thing about a uh, you know media property like that is that the you have constraints put on you by uh, the economy. You know, by the amount of funding that you can put into the show, the amount of effects that you can, the amount you can spend on effects, that kind of thing, and uh, you wind up. Uh, creating issues for yourself from that that you then have to go and explain through mm -hmm. creative writing so <laughs> yeah but is. then people see what you make and because humans are an infinitely creative species they will <sighs> then and go and like come up with a way to make it work the thing you only came up with in order to uh you know get under budget so yeah. <laughs> Well, because like, like the, oh, yeah, here's a here's a pad, but it's better than a pad. <laughs> well, here's communicators, but they're thing. better than communicators. Well, uh, well, just my there... favorite thing about sci-fi is, like I said last episode, like nothing is more of its time than a vision of the future. Yep. <laughs> so I love the enormous clunky TOS technology that's based mostly on looking like a well-lit submarine, <laughs> and. You know, like ten years later, we had we had computers that were like effectively smaller, although they couldn't talk to you. Yeah. Well, just the the just the faster than light. Uh, like one of the easiest ways. Well, I say easiest. Well, and we'll, we'll get into this when we do our faster than mm -hmm. our quote unquote faster than light episode. Is it, it's technically possible. One of the easiest way, again, easy is in heavy quotation marks ways of doing it is how they do it in Star Trek, creating a warp bubble. Compressing space in front of you and ex expanding it behind you. Like that, that is our number one ticket to Faster Than Light at the moment. Uh, now that being said, uh, I, Federation ships with their antimatter drives are going to be magnitudes of order 
in lower in power generation than the Romulan ships, which I find interesting because for the longest time in, you know, Next Generation, uh, I think in the original series, like the Romulans were always like the big bad guys with these ultra advanced technology and they got it right in the in the generators because those black hole drives are absolutely insane in what in the power that they can put out that being said they're also several orders of magnitude lower than what you would need to do faster than light travel <laughs> cool. so i don't actually know if uh, faster than light travel will actually ever actually be possible just because the energy required to create a warp bubble around like a 747 would be the negative energy equivalent of slamming a Jupiter into a negative Ju uh, an antimatter Jupiter <laughs> which if your brain breaks at the thought of that um, yes you are correct uh, that is absolutely insane uh, and I don't know that we'll ever have power generation enough on that scale to do that. That being said, our understanding of physics could be flawed, uh, and there might be a way to, well, we know there's a way to do that in the positive energy spectrum, which negative energy generating it in, in or even understanding what it is in its own thing is a different thing altogether. Uh, but, you know, there might be a way to lower the Earth's requirements or get around them some way. You know, we, d we don't really know. Uh, but at the moment, uh, yeah, even the absolutely insane black holes generators are not enough to do that. Hey, based on my like non-scientific understanding of like the current theories around FTL, it seems like it's, it seems right now to be more practical and less energy intensive to, to generate stable wormholes and traverse them. Then, yes, basically. Well, to generate wormholes, stable is a whole different thing. That's yeah. a science fiction thing. But like to, to just create a wormhole between two points that you choose would be less like energy intensive than to try to move a ship between those two points using yeah. A, uh, a warp field. But again, those those energy requirements are almost the same uh, for generating oh, a, okay. a warp bubble. It's it's absolutely insane amounts of energy. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, yeah, like the scales, one of the things I appreciate about the more recent trend into hard science fiction in uh, science fiction novels is looking at things like FTL travel or communication and then assuming we can only do them with like energy, for instance, um, yeah. which is uh, altered carbon, one of my favorite uh, properties. Um, uh, interstellar travels facilitated by uh, all human minds are digitized into a, a cortical storage device. So they just, uh, they, they read you out of your cortical storage device and transmit you uh, through, through the quantum foam to the other planet. And then you get uh, you get written into a cortical storage device and put into another body, which they call sleeves. And that's it. Like, there's not a way to physically get things between stars because you know they, they don't have an FTL drive. Well, that so it's just information up, and people. That opens up so many philosophical questions. Oh yes, it's a it's a trilogy of novels, and they're really good. I highly recommend it because. Uh, the perspective character is someone who used to be basically an interplanetary uh, commando of a certain kind, a very special kind. So there's a reaction force for the interstellar uh, UN protectorate that maintains an iron grip on all human civilization. If there are insurgents, they pick up a team of, they call them envoys. They transmit them there. And then those envoys work out how they're going to like infiltrate, corrupt, and destroy the, the movement. Very cool. He has an extensive history of being resleeved in like the philosophical, uh, uh, all of the different, I mean, not just philosophical, but also like the social impacts of like what, <laughs> what do kids think when um, their dad gets in an industrial accident and like the social, the social insurance covers him getting a new sleeve because it is an accident, but like not enough money to have a custom sleeve so he just gets one that's available and it's a woman of a different ethnicity and substantially different age when they come back like how do children cope with having their parents uh identities in a body that they don't associate with 
with the parent when they only have a few years worth of like socialization into this concept in order to cope with it very fucking fascinating so i'm assuming this is a uh, horror show or, or series it, um so there is a there's a two season netflix series that's an adaptation it's a trilogy of novels and it is i don't know if I don't know if I would call it up against it. I don't know if I put it in any specific genre, but like there is an implicit, not just body horror, but like identity horror at the core of this idea for sure. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to check that out because that sounds amazing. <laughs> I can't recommend Altered Carbon enough. Read the, I would read the books first because if you watch the show first like they because the Netflix algorithm cancels everything after two seasons they had to combine the stories of the last two books into one season. Wow. Well, see the problem is that after two seasons uh people start asking for money. So <laughs> the the actors who were discovered and became hits off of it are suddenly asking to be, you know, paid a fair amount for the work that they do and that's why Netflix yeah, has to shut down. <laughs> Fucking hate. Uh, it ruins everything. Yep. Everything. So, uh, do you guys have any other uh, questions for me? Because uh, there are literally a about a dozen other subjects on power that we could go over. Uh, um, so, just getting back to the bottle light. How does the energy get out of the bottle? Oh well, yeah. you you, uh, you just generally have like a. a us uh, a valve on it uh like you could put that in a laser like just line the laser with the the super reflective material and then just have it like either q switched or just like a physical switch right so what i'm thinking is if it's something where um you know the light's in there and it's reflecting off of that and you've got a valve in there to slowly let the light out over time that would mean that you'd be running out of light in the bottle wouldn't you yeah eventually mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Uh, so that would be, be the. So from a from a, uh, a story perspective, that's the where you're running out of fuel aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing okay. about that is, it would also be a not a steady power supply. Uh, it would start off uh, off high, and then as you get down to like half empty, it would be you know half power as well, going all the way down. To so you'd want to have multiple bottles. bottles. Yeah. Working or in sync to each other. Quickly. Yeah. Yeah. We're both. Yep. So the other interesting thing about that is, uh, you how would you even know what the fuel level is? Because if you observe it, then you have then you're losing it, aren't you? Oh, well, I guess you have a two way mirror. Yeah, you well, have a two way mirror, but also on the the uh, the the switch. Uh, on the inside of the bottle, you could have like a a, a light detector, and yeah. you could just detect how the intensity of the light inside the bottle. Now, uh, two-way mirror. Um, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking you could actually. I wonder if you could use that to get the light out of it without losing the light out of it because it's still reflecting. Well, the thing about a two-way mirror is that it can't be a perfect reflector. A right. perfect reflector observed from its backside is going to appear to be a black body right ah okay yeah well the easiest way i think to, to I almost had perpetual motion cracked you ruined oh, it well it's the problem like you can get real close to perpetual motion but as soon as you like reach out to touch that shit you're getting slapped down by physics or murphy <laughs> or both yeah Every, everybody keeps trying to do zero point energy but the, yep. the, the day somebody cracks that is the, is the day they split the universe in half. Oh, we have to go to the Pegasus Galaxy because the uh, the first humans went there and left all of their technology behind. <laughs> ah, well, that'll help. So my my other favorite start or my other favorite long term science fiction uh, 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 property is Stargate. Oh, I need to rewatch Stargate. Sort of. Babylon yes. Five is mine. They tend to be very grounded in their. Uh... Oh yeah, technology. Uh, Babylon Five also like they widely used '90s CGI, which like you can tell, but it holds up a lot better than early 2000s CGI, which is cool. Yeah, it's that's wild too, but that's absolutely true. Um, I just real quick, so the easiest way to tell how much energy you have left in 
your uh, your light fuel cell is just to have a feedback circuit on the on the exterior of it that can tell what relative power level it has from when it started. That makes sense. Yeah, that way you don't have to put anything inside the bottle that can break, and yeah. then, you don't, then you don't know how much is left. Yeah, because that's always one of our issues with diesel generators is because uh, it, it's a it's a tank, it's an onboard tank. Uh, on the generator that holds, I think, something like 50 gallons of diesel, which it goes through in, like, a couple hours if you don't, if it's at full load and it gets mm-hmm. disconnected from the main fuel tanks, the external fuel tanks. Anyway, so, you, we have a float valve in there. Uh, it's like the float that you have in your toilet, and uh, as, so as it goes down, it will tell, uh, you know, it'll it'll pump more fuel from the exterior tanks uh, automatically. And one of the big issues we'd have in the desert is if you get anything in there, any debris or through wear and tear, if that float stops working, then the generator can run out of fuel and just die. Because mm-hmm. it thinks there's still fuel in there and there's not. And it's still running like there is. And it's not, you know, putting out to the signal to get more fuel in. So. Yep, that sounds very classic desert problems. Yep, because we're not supposed to be doing that. <laughs> we're doing a lot yeah. of shit we shouldn't do. Well, we can't stop doing shit we shouldn't do. So now you have to just go. Yep. You have a timer for every generator with a broken float that hasn't been replaced. You need a guy to go out there and refill it manually with yep. ten jerry cans. <laughs> Oh god, we need to get into fossil fuels entirely. They're... I've done that before, by the way. Re- how? I've done that. Fossil fuels? No, 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 not getting off fossil fuels. No, where um, where the float doesn't work, and so to keep oh. the generator running, we were manually pouring fuel into oh, yeah. it. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. In the there. Automation doesn't work. Make the soldiers do it. Yep. <laughs> That's what we're for. <laughs> Hey, when the machines uh, don't work, manual labor usually does. You know, the upside yeah. to it is that uh, you can really easily and fairly accurately calculate rates of fuel consumption so you know when you're going to have to take the jugs out there more or less. You're like, oh, okay, well, this thing's been running at load for this amount of time, so it's probably going to need it now. Yeah. So that's the upside. You don't, you don't have guessing. Yeah, you don't have too. As long as you don't have too many down at once, it won't be too complicated to yep. get them refueled. It's just that it's it's so classically army to have mm-hmm. an automation system for something, and then when it breaks down, not fix it or not be able to. Yeah, usually the not be able to part. Yeah, or it just takes it takes entirely too long. Yep, because you'll have like you... two or three uh, fuel pumps on or uh, fuel floats on bench stock. If you're an average size power plant, and yeah, once those run out, you gotta wait for <laughs> the rest to get there someday. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, yeah. scavenge them off of uh, other generators that are broken for other reasons and waiting on parts. <laughs> so that you wind up having the one generator that you pull all the parts off of. I'm sure that's a, that's I'm sure something that happens with a lot of military equipment. Oh yeah, the hangar queen is that goes yep. back well past hangers. <laughs> That was they were doing that with uh, they were doing that with ships when they were still steam powered. Yeah. Oh. So, uh, so we've got so the uh, I really like the light bottle, especially as a miniaturized battery to go inside like a hand weapon or hand tool. That's just that's yeah. fucking cool. Yeah. Um. So we've got, but we've got for the uh, for the black hole cell. You've got your micro singularity inside your perfect reflector, and it's hawking radiation is getting fed uh, back into it. So it's constantly emitting more and more energy. How do you stop that from uh, from killing you inevitably? How do you regulate the, the power output from this? <laughs> you don't. That's the thing. So uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a power source that will always be on, uh, and hopefully your quote-unquote perfect reflectors are absolutely perfect uh, and they don't heat up mm-hmm. and they don't fail uh, and then the way you, you actually put energy into the system is basically by feeding the black hole like just throwing matter into it 
<laughs> so, in essence, the Romulan black hole generator is a more efficient mass-to-energy converter than the Federation's antimatter drive. Because all the Romulans need is just straight mass, and it does not care what kind of mass it is. Yeah, production of antimatter was something like uh, that Star Trek never went into because it was theoretical until relatively recently, I believe. Yeah, um, it's, it's really hard to make. Uh, and, and the way you produce it currently is basically in a particle accelerator. You know, you smash <clears throat> a stream of protons at like 90% of the speed of light into, uh, I forget what kind of a barrier, is, barrier it is, but it's some sort of solid barrier in that collision creates you know thousands of different particles and it uh in some of those are, are antimatter particles just because it's it's being slammed at such a high velocity but so, so but then you have a problem like your chamber is completely full of exotic particles and you only want one kind yep. of exotic particles how do you sieve that uh ma magnetic fields basically uh mm. yeah you're going to you're going to trap some other particles that with the same charge as the antimatter, uh, which is fine because they're the same charge and not the opposite charge, which mm -hmm. would cause them to collide. Oh, okay, right. That would make it a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, and then you just trap them in a magnetic bottle, and then you have to have that magnetic bottle never fail. So uh, I hope if your, your, your fuel system goes down on the uh, Federation ships and you're having to jerry can into in the antimatter, <laughs> that you uh, don't drop any of those cans of antimatter, because uh, that could well, go good, badly. Good thing about a jerry can full of antimatter is it doesn't weigh anything. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I will say this, if the warp core on the Federation ship gets cracked, you know, that's okay. It's going to be right. an explosion, <laughs> but if the black hole generator... Yeah, yeah you're talking about, especially if it's near another ship with the same system. Yeah. You could accidentally, like, if you had just, a, like, a flotilla of Romulan warbirds go down in the same place, like, you're just creating a new black hole. Well, it's... All those singularities is, will fuse, right? Well, no, no. The thing is, once that uh, containment field is... Oh. It... Like, the black holes won't last long enough to merge with anything. Right. Like, they just go pop. And everything that's stored in them goes boom. Right. So, so you, get, you get, like, a, a 10,000 suns explosion very briefly. Yeah. Yeah, basically. <laughs> okay. Well, that's... So, regular warbirds go boom big. Uh, not to mention well, if... Something goes wrong, and through some space hijinkery, it does start to absorb enough matter that it has a actual uh, Schwarzschild radius uh, and starts eating your ship. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that could also be bad. Yeah. Well, it was one of the things, like as a kid, even I was curious uh, about when I was watching TNG when it was new. Um, like the Romulan warbirds, they had the singularity drive, and like so, obviously, artificial gravity and inertial dampeners. We, we have the ability to manipulate gravity somehow. So, is there some sort of gravitic shielding in place to keep that from happening, even in the event of a runaway reaction? I mean, that seems pretty likely. Uh, it would, if you have the the gravitic that. shielding, would be more just to keep the the black hole in in place and actually move it with the ship. Uh, but mm -hmm. once that mirror gets cracked, man, that's that's kind of just that, that's all she wrote. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's not going to be like the thing. The thing about all these higher energy systems is that a partial failure mode is not usually present in most of them, or it is, but it's not yeah. something that the crew can survive. Yeah, because there's there's only so much energy that solid mat materials can take before they fail. So you have to clean mm -hmm. everything with electromagnetic fields or you know perfect reflection. Stuff like that. You, you well, crack perfect and reflection. It... Like, Go ahead. We already have talked, well, just real quick, we have already talked about programmable metamaterials several yes. times. Um, are we thinking possibly some kind of metamaterial that allows you to, to regulate the reflective like value of the interior of the chamber? 
Yes, that is actually uh, one of the, the theorized ways to do this okay. is with metamaterials. Uh, I'm not super well versed on how all that works. Uh, all I know is that currently we have perfect reflectors, but they only work on specific wavelengths of light. So you mm -hmm. need like metamaterials to come in and be for all wavelengths, uh, or at least all the wavelengths that are put off by the, the generator. Right, the, the, all the harmful ones. Yeah. For sure, yeah. Yeah. So, hmm. Huh. I'm just trying to imagine this is either like a series of nested nested shells of materials that are transparent to everything but what they're absorbing or reflecting. But like this it starts to get extremely like it's like not that it wasn't already mechanically complex. Yeah. But especially if you need variable current to a bunch of different shells that are near a reaction that has an incredibly high energy uh, output and presumably has like its own EM and magnetic fields it's putting out too. Oh shit. I just like, like getting getting things to work near a high tension line is already a big deal and that's with our current technology and our current high tension lines. Oh, hold on. I just figured So I just had yeah. an idea. So if if we were ever to able to actually do this, it would basically mean we could shield 100% from any radiation. Um, well, yeah. That has oh, severe wow. <laughs> implications for intra-universal travel because you can technically survive falling into a supermassive black hole. If it's spinning, however, you could, in theory, go to another universe. The only thing is you have to pass through a, uh, a, a an area where you're basically getting bombarded by literally infinite radiation. But if you have something that is literally perfect in terms <laughs> of reflection, in theory, you could actually pass through that wormhole into another universe. That, that's a hell of a thought. Yeah. But huh. well, assuming, always assuming that there's a physical location in the universe you go to where you can, you can come out. Uh, well, yeah, that is, that is the, uh, the kicker there because not all universes are going to have laws of physics that allow us to exist. Well, uh, yeah, your perfect reflector is going to be fucking meaningless if the weak force functions differently fundamentally here. Yeah. You'll just be exotic particles yourself, and also yeah. your generator. But that's wild, because that means that means that th that technically, theoretically, it's easier to travel between universes than it is to travel between different planets. Oh yeah, yeah, that's been um, a pretty recent but consistent element of uh, science fiction. Is that uh, yeah? Interdimensional travel is actually a lot easier than uh, interplanetary or interstellar, just because uh, it's a lot shorter distance. <laughs> you just have to have a way to make sure what's on the other side is compatible with your your physicality and biology, and then you're good to go. Yep. Yeah. Fucking wild. <laughs> but also, going back to Stargate and, and regular wormhole travel, real quick. Um, I always. The beginning of SG One has a bunch of like uh, like many worlds theory uh, uh, plot devices and episodes and stuff, and I always thought that they didn't take it logically far enough, and then theorized that every time you step through the Stargate, you're stepping into another universe. Well, every um, every breath you take, every every decision you make, every plank second, you're splitting off into many different oh, worlds. At least, at least well, according I mean, to the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Well, sure, but I found that it was a, it was a less abstract and more interesting uh, idea for me was like, so you have, like there is, they have this set piece of a galaxy. Most humans are enslaved. Pretty much only humans on Earth are enslaved. And they go throughout this galaxy doing things and like fighting aliens. Um but if you're like every time, every time you leave, uh, like every time you leave the light cone of uh, your your star, like your existence on in your solar system, you're going to another, another like uh, another quantum potential state. And when you come back, you're not resuming your old one. So in a way, like you're talking about uh, 
I mean, the ship of Theseus stuff comes into it, but like in a much more fundamental way, like the, the plot device, like the central conceit of the entire Stargate universe is that the first humans came up with a way to kill yourself and come out in another universe with mostly the same memories. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. That, was, that sounds I, about right for, uh, that's, uh, ties into teleportation too. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I fucking, oh, teleportation is going to be a fun episode. Yeah. Uh, no, you don't understand. It just, it tunnels through it on the quantum level. So it t- takes all your quantum states and sends them down there. It's completely fine. <laughs> I, I am not stepping onto a, uh, a Star Trek type tele- teleportation pad anytime soon. Uh, that that is I, not something I will do. I I will wait for the wormhole. Thank you. Yeah, I mean that that kind of thing, like the the uh, the teleportation, like the transporter. You pretty much could only use that for pretty basic stuff. Yeah. Because you're talking about like just for instance consciousness. Um. Unless consciousness is a completely physically deterministic uh, process, um, there's not a way to store and move it. Yeah, that's... so you can't. <laughs> it's a different like what you would get. My understanding is like even if like you could maintain all the biological processes, what you should get is a Starfleet officer or someone wearing a Starfleet uniform on the other side of the the transporter who does not have any memories or ideas of any kind. Just a blank slate. <laughs> like Riker. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just like all the Rikers. Yep. Oh, no, they have uh, Tom Riker yeah. is a clone of William T. Riker that was created in a transporter accident. Yeah. Uh, specifically, not a clone. It is, it's a transporter buffer copy. Yep. It's not a grown clone. But it came out, like, Tom Riker came out with Will Riker's memories and personality to that point. He just materialized uh, on on the station that Riker took the away team to well after they left. Yep. And it was in a mo- abandoned, mostly derelict place. He just had to live there by himself. Which creates the... Gives me the idea that in, in Star Trek... Uh, Star Trek's view of biology, anyway, is that... The entirety of your memories and everything that makes you you is actually just straight up a uh, biological process. It's purely yes, it's all, chemical, all physically deterministic. Yeah, because it couldn't um, be any other way. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's going to be an interesting question when we do our teleportation episode. Because yeah, yep. I have got whole, I have got legions of digressions about teleportation and quantum teleportation and the implications oh, and yeah. like why, what keeps what keeps the Federation or one of the powers that's written to be less like sickly sweet ethical why are they not just printing massive numbers of, of people to do all like everything they need like why are people reproducing anymore <laughs> the oh, stuff that they've done with the that. transporter buffer especially in later shows shows and seasons is fucking wild like uh separating tuvix into tuvok and neelix if the transporter buffer and the main computer can do that it, you you probably could just construct an entire sentient person out of nothing. Okay, one. There's only one Neelix. There are no. There's no second Neelix. If there is a second yeah. Neelix, let's not. Well, it was. Um, there's an episode where Tuvok and Neelix get merged in transporter accident into uh, a character they call Tuvix for the duration of the episode. Um, Who was, by the one? way, better than either of his separate parts? It's true, actually. Yeah. Um, I like I like Neelix a lot more than most people because, uh, well, for a variety of reasons. But like the merger of the character Tuvok, who is relatively flat even through the whole series, and uh, Neelix, who isn't flat, he's very interesting. It's also very aggravating. <laughs> was uh, was a really cool idea. And while I appreciate, I appreciate that we got to see the captain look someone in the eye and say, "No, I'm going to kill you." get on the transporter pad <laughs> was really cool. But uh, like all of the, uh, all the actual, like the abstract implications of everything about that for the universe, for how things work, fucking phenomenal and completely unintended as well as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah. All right. And with that, we are at an hour here. Uh, so I think we're right. gonna... <laughs> Not only I think are we going to call it here. I think next week kind of has to be teleporters. 
Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's fair. Well, we also we barely got into power distribution and stuff. Oh God, that that's that's ten episodes worth. Like, there's there's <laughs> so much out there. Like, yeah, I read up on like theoretical, um, like in 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 system, like multiplanetary single star scale uh, distribution through like microwave beams and shit. Yeah, and like. It sounds cool and viable, but that also sounds like you're just creating the ability to weaponize an entire star against yeah. that system if someone well, gets a hold of it. Well, we didn't even get into, like, like uh, space mirrors and stuff. Well, it has been a pleasure, and I yep. look forward to uh, hearing the finished episode. I am going to. Seriously. All right. See you guys, right and see you yeah. uh, next time. All right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. All right. See you again later, guys. And girls. Right, later. Later.